episode of Behind the Lens. Welcome, welcome. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. And you will find my movie reviews and interviews in the U.S. and abroad in print and online 24-7, including on BehindTheLensOnline.net. But every Monday, you're going to find me right here on Adrenaline Radio, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers and shakers and filmmakers of film, television, musicians, composers, screenwriters, you name it. We cover the gamut here. So welcome, welcome. Hard to believe we're already at the end of September. We're coming to the home stretch of 2018. It's amazing. The year just flies by. But we've got a great show today. We have joining us actor Kelly Green, who is the star of a new movie, written and directed by her husband, Michael Green, called Live. Now, you've heard me talking a lot over the past couple months about the um, screen life, film language, that was developed by Timur Beckman Mambatov, and we've seen it come to life with greater fluidity and a lot more impact with Unfriended Dark Web and recently Searching, which is, by the way, people, Searching. It is still in theaters, expanding theaters throughout the United States, See it, see it, see it, see it once, see it twice, see it three times. You will find clues. You will see things each time that you haven't seen before. It's amazing. While not quite getting into the screen life language format, what Michael does with live, and Michael's going to be joining us next week, by the way, uh, and we're going to talk in depth about the film. What he does with live, Kelly plays the character of Linda Johnson, and... Uh, She's just broken up with her husband, and she gets her own Facebook account. He's never let her have one. And she starts doing live Facebook streams. And we're gonna, we'll talk to her about this and what unfolds, because at one point it becomes, where is Linda Johnson? So we're going to talk to her about that and uh, the experience of things being shot on, you know, on a phone. On an iPhone, on, a, on an Android phone for broadcast on Facebook and all the accompanying comments that uh, pop up on the screen with what's going on and what is seen on camera. So Kelly's going to join us at the quarter hour mark. I'm very excited to talk to her. And at the half hour mark, wow, let me just say, talk about a documentary. A Dangerous Idea, Eugenics, Genetics, and the American Dream. We've got director Stephanie Welch joining us. And this takes a look at the theories that many have regarding genetics and the whole idea of eugenics, which is the science of improving population by controlled breeding. Think back to Adolf Hitler and the Nazi regime. Getting rid of everybody except the blonde white Aryans. Um, that's essentially what eugenics boils down to. And there are philosophies out there, there always have been, regarding this purification or this controlled breeding. But it's gone a step further than that over the years, that there are genes, genes for being selfish, genes for being smart, 
genes for many things. Um, and uh, genes for who, who will be in poverty because of your genetic makeup? Who will be a millionaire because of your genetic makeup? Who will be a businessman because of your genes? Not because of your intelligence factor, but because of your genealogy uh, and your actual DNA within uh, your gene makeup, the genome sequence within each of us. So I can't wait to talk to Stephanie about putting this documentary together. Uh, she has some of the most foremost experts in so many different areas um, as part of the documentary. So I'm very excited to talk to her about that. But before we get to Kelly and Stephanie, you're going to take a listen now to uh, the other week I did an exclusive interview with Susan Lacey. Susan Lacey is a producer, director. You know her work from American Masters on PBS. She just had an Emmy nomination for her TV movie documentary on Steven Spielberg. Sadly, she did not win the Emmy. But with her latest project, I guarantee you, an Emmy nod is coming her way again next year, too. She already has 14 Emmys to her credit, by the way. This one, Jane Fonda in Five Acts. And as I told Susan, with Jane Fonda, you could have done an entire miniseries, Jane Fonda in Eight Acts cover 10 years of her life in each of the eight segments. This is an astounding, insightful documentary. The bulk of the, there's archival material from Jane, uh, from Peter, and it explores Jane and how she has developed and changed over the years and been molded depending on the man in her life until finally after she left Ted Turner, Jane became Jane. It's really interesting to watch unfold. You would never think of Jane Fonda as being somebody molded by a man. But first you see her being molded by her father, Henry Fonda, then by her first husband, Roger Vadim, then Tom Hayden, then Ted Turner. Uh, it's, and she gives her own commentary. Of course, Robert Redford does some interviews. Um, but the bulk of this is Jane, Jane's own words. So... Take a listen to my interview with Susan Lacey talking Jane Fonda in Five Acts. I'm re I'm really curious, Susan. What was the impetus for doing Jane Fonda in Five Acts? Uh, you mean to structure it that way? Well, no, to do it from the start, just to go ahead and do out of everybody out there to pick from to do a, a profile on like this. <laughs> you know what? Well, what um, led you to Jane? It goes back a goes back a long way. I, I wanted, I've been interested in Jane and her story since I read her book mm -hmm. uh, about 17 years. I started talking to her, I think about 10 years ago. And because um, I, I thought, first of all, she's an extraordinary, um, she's an extraordinary story of the story of women mm -hmm. in our set, you know, in our time. Uh, you can tell the story of women through Jane's stories, and and her own very personal journey, I think, is also a very universal one. Uh, so that you know, and she's you know she's just a fascinating person and amazing archive and beautiful and courageous and and at times you know t times maybe not as careful as she should have been and. Um, so I, I wanted to do this film for a long time. And at American Masters, I, I, um, I had to raise a lot of the money 
myself. Mm-hmm. So I was, um, you know, it was getting harder and harder to raise money. Not that it was hard to raise money for Jane, but in particular, it was getting harder and harder to raise money for these kind of very big films. Right. But I did not have the I did not have those kind of budgets of, of, from PBS, so I had to supplement them. And the marketplace changed. You don't need to know all that. You know, there was no more DVDs, so I couldn't do DVDs, pre-sales, and all, all that kind of thing. So when I was ready um, uh, to make the move from American Masters to, um, to HBO, uh, I knew that Jane had a, you know, was, was, was doing newsroom at HBO, and, um, and I thought, this is the time. So HBO was and it all came together. I had another film in front of that. I did the Steven Spielberg film first. Uh, that was my first film for HBO, and this is my second. And I'm, I'm really, I, I, it was a real privilege to do, I have to say. Yeah, so then how did you dis- approach this? How do you break down the life of Jane Fonda? I mean, I love what you came up with here, breaking it into four acts on each husband, and then finally her. Well, first her father. So it's father, mm-hmm. <laughs> nephew, husband. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Father and then the, and then the three husbands. Yeah, and then Jane is the last act. Well, um, to some degree, the um, impetus for that came from her own book, um, mm-hmm. where she says in her book uh, that she wanted to write this book. She wanted to understand her first two acts in order to know how to live her third. And... Um, uh, so the notion of act was embedded, you know, in my head. Mm-hmm. And when I started working on the film, I thought, you know, it isn't really three acts, it's really five acts. You know, each husband is a, sort of a different act. There's a different Jane for each husband. And her father, of course, is the overriding, uh, you know, influence, uh, good and bad, in her life throughout and to this day. So, and, and it was her childhood and her re- relationship with her father, of course her mother enters that picture as well, um, that is really um, the sort of grist for the mill of the rest of the story. Mm-hmm. I mean, what I... Tr- so it was, to me, it was very, it was very logical. <laughs> well, it really and is. Also, I wanted, I wanted to, to also make it very clear that... You know, that this is, I hate to use the word journey, but I haven't come up with a better one, but that this is um, a journey to herself in this film. And um, and it's kind of triumphant um, when she realizes that she can shed all the identification that she always felt she needed to have with a man in order to validate herself. Mm-hmm. And that was incredible triumph, triumph of self-actualization. I mean, one of the great things with this is seeing the change in her that you present within each one of these acts. And of all people in the world, one would never think that Jane Fonda was shaped by whatever man she was with at that moment. And to see that through all of your archival materials, a lot of it in a very, very verite format, is really eye-opening and astounding. And when you and when you realize here she is, 80 years old, and she's finally, you know, trekked to to the mountain of Jane. She is now at the top of the mountain. Exactly. Uh, and we've never seen that 
before with it laid out this succinctly, but with all the visuals, the touchstones that we know, and then all the new information that we don't know. And, right. and, and there is a, a lot of new information. I mean, some of this, of course, was some of the outlines of her story are certainly in her book. Oh, sure. But it's one thing, I think, to write about it in the solitude of your your writing room at your ranch. Um, and it's another thing to talk about it many years later, to relive it, and to know that millions of people are going to see it, and some of it's quite painful to talk about, and then to see it with the visual material that, you know, which is very different from reading a book. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm really glad that people are responding to the film the way I responded to her. You know, yeah. Every filmmaker is different. Every filmmaker, you know, have given all the same set of materials, you're going to make different films. Um, this is the, the, the Jane I saw, and I think it's very... Uh, accurate. Though I do want to say one thing and kind of she was very shaped clearly and she says that she wanted to be molded mm-hmm. you know, in some way. She wanted somebody to help her find something real in her because her first part of her life was a kind of a myth. You know, right. She says living a myth of the Hollywood life. Um, but I think there was always a very strong Jane. I think Jane had to become strong to deal with her childhood, to mm-hmm. survive her childhood, yeah. in a way, you know. But I, I think that, that she doesn't give herself enough credit <laughs> for, for, you know, that there was always a Jane in there. I mean, she was an activist before she met Tom Hayes, Um and that's what, you know, why she got involved with him. Um, so I just think she doesn't always give herself credit for the, the very strong Jane that was always in there. But the Jane that was crippled to some degree by insecurity, mm-hmm. uh, a, a need for perfection, and her idea of perfection was, I have to be perfect for the person I'm with so that they will love me. That was the shocking, that's the shocking part. Yeah. I know, uh, I, I, that she felt that, she, yeah, go on, that she felt she, that there would, nobody could love her unless she was perfect. The one line she says where she doesn't, she doesn't think that she's brave enough. I almost fell out of my chair. Um, I know. You know, there are so many revelatory moments. And I'm curious, as your your archivist who pulled all this together, I applaud them. Applaud them. Um, But I'm curious. Amazing. I mean, I have a great team of researchers, and they really, really, really worked hard on this. And we knew there was, by the way, we knew there was an amazing archive starting out. Well, yeah. Um, and I very purposely, I very purposely wanted to make a film that, you know, was really built on that archive. Mm-hmm. It was so extraordinary. And that's why I didn't do very many interviews, um, except with her. And you didn't need to. Voices. You didn't need they to. Weren't they weren't necessary. Yeah. Exactly. How did you go about culling through and structuring what you would include, you know, developing all of the details within your chapterized through line? Because there is so much more to her life that you, um, you could have included. Uh, so I'm curious how you culled this down to come up with the co- cogency of the story you have and then working your editors, Benjamin. Absolutely amazing. You know, ben, well, ben is an incredible editor. He speaks to, editors never get uh, the shout out that they should. Oh. But um, you know, he he's actually the one who 
watched every frame of every archive that came in, and then um, he would say, oh, he's a, here, here are, I think, the strongest elements, and, and I would say, well, I think we need this, or I think we need that, or I want more home movies, or, you know, that kind of thing. But, um, you know, the film is not, my, my rough cuts are always twice as long as the ultimate film. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? um, and then it's the question of, of editing. You know, and I don't just mean editing in the actual physical sense. It is, you know, you start removing things that um, are sometimes getting in the way of the storyline or that you don't really need or there's just too much. I mean, I think my Vietnam section was twice as long at one point, you know, and it was like, oh, my God, way too much Vietnam. But I, I have to see it all together before I know what I can remove and still be happy with the film. Mm hmm. Well, and something that you... I think I took, at one point, I took about an hour out of the film. Wow. Well, you know, one thing that you did, and you mentioned the Vietnam section, and what I truly love, because that is such a controversial aspect of her life, it is to this day with many people, you showed, you represented both sides of the coin. It wasn't all about Jane's interpretation you had you had foot, archival footage in there of supporters. You also had Dick Cavett's commentaries, um, where he and well, that's on purpose. I didn't want to. I didn't want to be taking a position on it, either defending it mm-hmm. or criticizing it. I wanted to present it. This is what happened. Yeah. This is why Jane did what she did. This is how Jane feels about what she did. This is the regret she has. This is the criticism she faced. Um, because, you know, it's a complicated, it's a very complicated issue. I really, that, that was the hardest section to do, actually. <laughs> um, because there was so much information. It was a complicated story. I really knew I had to keep the POW story in there. Mm-hmm. It was so complicated. So it just took a long time to, to strike the right note, where I think you have enough information to understand what she did, why she's hated still by some people to this day, and why she did what she did. Um, you know, I mean, I personally think that, and she agrees, she should not have gone alone, and she probably should, she should not have set on the anti-aircraft gun. I think she was quite manipulated by the North Vietnamese, but the POW issue is very complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, that, and I don't know that there's a, that there are any answers about it. She did what she did. She, she um, spoke to them, they told her what and she believed them, and then later they said that, you know, they were being, that was bullshit, they were being tortured to say what she wanted to hear. I don't believe any of that. It's too complicated. Uh, none of those were around to, to interview, so I just presented the situation as, as I saw it. Well, I think there's a whole lot of Jane's story that resonates yeah. uh, to this day. Um, I mean, she is still, you know, a flat-out activist, and uh, that is, I think she, that is where... The heart and soul of Jane is an activist. Yeah. Uh, much more so than a movie star. And I think that she, uh, her, you know, her being a sort of beacon of the feminist movement uh, is resonating very loudly today. Mm-hmm. And also, I think, for people speaking out. You know, when she was, she was one of the very first Hollywood people. I mean, not one of the first. I mean, there was a Hollywood tent, you know, in the McCarthy era. Right. She was one of the first to go on this national stage and, you know, really speak out against the government. And um, she was reviled for it by many people, and there are many people who thought it was inappropriate. Now, she's like every young actress, uh, 
looks to her as a, as a role model. He just love her and admire her. He has a deeply empathetic understanding of her. Yeah. After your depth and breadth of, of these profiles that you've done for so long now, what did you personally take away from the making of this one, from the making of Jane Fonda and Five Acts, that you will take forward into your future projects? I don't know about taking forward into my future projects, but take forward into my future life. Um, I, You know, this is going to sound so cliche, but what I... And to hear the rest of that, you're going to have to go to BehindTheLensOnline.net. Well, we have a, an in-show change. Kelly Green is not joining us. Asante Jones is joining us to talk about live. So let's bring Asante on. Well, hello, Asante. And here I thought you were out at a callback today. <laughs> well, you know what? I just, I just got out of my callback. Well, and um, I can't wait to discuss this film well, I am thrilled to have you joining us to talk about this film because the, uh, live is it's such a great experience. In some ways, it's very similar to the new screen life language that Timur Bekmambetov has developed and we've seen come through with Unfriended Dark Web and the new searching. But this this goes even this it strays from that. But we're dealing here with a woman who's putting her life out there on live streams on Facebook and uh, somebody's watching. And yeah, yeah. This uh, this film definitely lives in its own lane, um, and it it raises the issue of how unsafe it can be to put too much personal information online. Yeah, you know there there needs to be some sort of uh, temperance to what people are willing to share about themselves. Mm-hmm. And of course, you. Yeah, I mean. In this age of geotagging, you know, you, you post something about yourself, and then uh, any hacker that knows how to exploit that can find out exactly where you are mm-hmm. at that exact moment. Yeah, and that's one of the interesting things that Michael has done in the construct of this. You play Detective George Culvert. You're the second uh, detective brought in to investigate where is Linda Johnson after a private eye shows up and says, hey, I got some stuff you need to look at. Uh, and I love how you play the detective, and all of your exchanges we see through the camera in the LAPD interrogation room. So we never, yeah, we yeah. never. The, the entire film is made up of uh, found footage mm-hmm. uh, sort of energy, um, and in fact, very little of it was specifically scripted. It was it was all ad libbed, improv, based on uh, you know these are the talking points we want to get into this scene, but. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we just we just talked off the cuff. Do you like that? Um, I, you have done so many TV one-offs, uh, Malcolm in the Middle, CSI. You've done a lot of cops in your time already, uh, <laughs> a lot. So it had to be easy to get am, into the detective I'm mode. I'm officially Hollywood scum. <laughs> but, I mean, you go all the way back to, you know, diagnosis murder even. Um, yeah. You have been around for quite a while, and... Of course, one of your greatest influences had to be your cousin, Greg Morris, of Mission Impossible fame. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. So much so that when I was seven, we came from Cleveland to uh, Beverly Hills to visit him. Mm -hmm. And I remember distinctly at age seven saying, whatever Greg did to get a swimming pool in his backyard, that's what I'm doing. (laughs) 
And of course, delving into things such as in Mission Impossible, you know, it follows through with all the police roles and, and attorneys and law enforcement. But this one with George Culvert, this is really the first role you've had a chance to really bite into a character. So, you know, yeah, with, I would agree with that. With the ad lib style, you know, how much fluidity, any kind of rehearsal, what was this process like as you're sitting there interrogating this private eye? And what I love about your performance is you can hear the frustration in your voice. And he's like, oh, well, take a look at this. And then suddenly he'll say, oh, well, and I have this. And you're going, well, wait a minute. How much more do you have and how did you get this? Um, oh, yeah. W- without a doubt. I mean, Eddie Hill is the private detective yep. that's investigating the, the situation. And the more he sort of lays on the table in front of me, an LAPD detective, Mm-hmm. the more I start to suspect that he may very well be involved in this himself. I mean, he seemed very privy to a lot of information. Yeah. And, he's, and rather than just releasing it to me all at once, he's telling me almost in storyteller format. Mm-hmm. So this sort of slow burn of release of information makes me suspicious of him even. Well, and I have to say that's exactly what I started thinking. I mean, we get the first little bit from him. Then when you get called in, and oh, he has another little bit. And then he has actual dark web hacker footage. Correct. With with this hacker, you know, using night vision, disguising his voice, a, a ski mask over his head. And you're like, how did he get this? And, oh, I have my ways. Um, he does not look like the kind of PI that, that quote, has his ways to access the dark web. Uh, <laughs> exactly. He did look like he couldn't operate a PC if his life depended on it. Uh, I'm surprised but, he even, even knew what a still, flash drive was. That doesn't was. mean that he doesn't have an accomplice. Right. That and that's one of the, I mean, there's some great ambiguity in here that I really love. And the deeper we go and the more your interrogation develops and your voice, you hear the frustration and the rising anger in your voice as he's saying, well, I think she's been kidnapped. Well, <laughs> why do you think that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. You know, exactly. I mean, I, I think Michael did a really solid job yeah. of informing us where we were in the story at all times. So before we would do any take, one, we knew what the talking points were for that specific scene. But more specifically, we knew what talking points had already taken place, mm-hmm. what level of suspicion had been in place and what new level of suspicion might be in place now. Mm-hmm. Um, he was very, very clear, very lucid about the universe that we were living in. Um, and it just it just made the performance that much easier, that much uh, more natural uh, in the moment. You know, and I'm curious, because of the fact that it's just the interrogation that you're having with Eddie Hill, you know, it, you're, the camera, it's the camera that you always see in, in police stations and in interrogation rooms up in the corner shooting down you don't have to worry about camera movement you don't have to worry about blocking you don't have to worry about anything else is that freeing for you as an actor that's incredibly freeing and i and so one of my little side hustle things is i coach uh clients for auditions Mm -hmm. and actors you know we're very self-absorbed beings and so we always want to know where the camera is and get our best angle going and 
to me, the most interesting performances are our actors who are not facing the camera. Mm-hmm. If you have something to say and you can hold my attention and I can't see your face, yeah. then to me, that is hyper engaging. Mm-hmm. So I leaned right into this. I was like, I was like, so the camera's basically kind of profile behind my head and I get to do my entire performance sort of facing away from it. That's fantastic. I can't wait to sink my teeth into that. Yeah, I mean, and it's very freeing because the way you sit in the chair at the, at the interrogation table and you're kind of, you tilt a little bit to your left just so we get to see the gun holster on your shoulder and a lot of expressiveness with your hands as you're reaching forward, as you're hitting the table, as you're, you know, putting fingers down and pointing and it's like, and the exasperation uh, that we're feeling. And I found that quite, a striking viewpoint, visual viewpoint to have uh, watching the movie. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad that that resonates with you. Uh, I hope that it resonates with more people like that. Um, you know, my objective is to, is to display the fact that Detective Colbert is unaware and uninterested, disinterested with the camera mm-hmm. being in place. I mean, the camera, the camera's always there in that location, in that room. Yeah. So why play anything for camera? The camera's not there for me. The camera's there for the potential suspect. Mm-hmm. We want to get him on camera mm-hmm. admitting to something. You know, so, what, and what's really... You know, I, I'm not going to play anything for the camera. I just want you to tell me your story and trip yourself up somehow. And you know what was, I found uh, very interesting in watching those interrogation scenes is... Eddie never looks up at the camera. Never looks up at the camera as you're interrogating him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we have to bear in mind, too, that Eddie is a retired cop, uh, PD detective. Mm-hmm. So he's been in interrogation rooms on my side of the table before. So he, he knows that camera's there, too. He's not going to look at that camera and, and trip himself up. <laughs> no, I mean, just... Really solidly well done. You know, now I have to ask you, because he's got the laptop there and he's allegedly showing you these flash drive things. Did Michael pre-record these with Kelly so that you had the benefit of looking at something on the laptop monitor? Um, my lips are sealed. Okay. Oh, Oh. Uh, there was there was some footage that was pre-recorded, mm-hmm. um, so that we were able to to reference some specific things. Uh, so yeah, there was some sometimes we're looking at the laptop and you were seeing exactly what you think we're saying, and then there's other times we're looking at the laptop uh, and it's blank and mm-hmm. it's green, it got green screened in later. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know there there were certainly a few a few scenes that had been pre-recorded at that point, so. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a reference point, an actual reference point. Yeah, because especially as you're looking at the unfolding comments on these live on the the what was once a live stream feed, which is now being is shown thanks to Eddie and whatever whoever he utilized to pull all these things off the off the web. Um, but we're seeing all the comments. Oh my God, get out of there! Oh my God, are you crazy? You know, run, run. We're seeing all of these comments. And what's so striking is that we, you know, Kelly in character as Linda, she's, it's as, she, it's as if she's oblivious to what all of her watchers are telling her. They know something right. is wrong. She's, and she's ignoring it. 
Right. She's ignoring right. it. Yeah. And, and, and I think that the, I, ideally the, the idea is to, to sort of display the fact that people put this information online mm-hmm. on such a regular basis that they become almost numb to mm-hmm. the notion that this can work against you somehow. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've become such a voyeuristic society that we just don't allow ourselves to go to this dangerous place in our minds. Uh, this feels very anonymous when we're doing this online. And so it doesn't even matter what I say, who's ever going to find me, who's ever going to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these people that know that do know that are watching this live, I don't know them. So what difference does it make? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so the real key component to this film is to bear in mind that the profile of Linda Johnson on Facebook was active and live mm-hmm. for nearly two years. So nearly two years while they were shooting this, mm-hmm. Linda Johnson would do these live posts occasionally, and she amassed over 3,300 friends mm-hmm. on Facebook. And so on July 13th, 2018, Linda Johnson, that profile, was abducted live on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And there were friends watching live yep. as it happened. And I didn't see anybody and going, I'm calling 911. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's the issue at hand is that some people were like, hey, sister, you okay? But no one took the next step. No one called the police. No one called mm-hmm. the FBI. No one did anything. And then there was complete silence from her profile for a full month mm-hmm. after that. Until August and 18th. In that, in that month, no one acted on her behalf. Yeah. No, I mean, the whole thing, that, it's frightening. It's a cautionary tale, uh, but it really, as you watch these, the all of this unfold, it's chilling. Uh, and without giving anything away, in some of those final clips that you are that you as in character and as Detective Culvert, as you get shown, those are chilling because we see yeah. exactly what unfolds. Yeah, yeah, and and, and folks need to. Remember, I mean, there was a situation in Cleveland um, about a little over a year ago where someone was killed live yeah. on Facebook. That's right. I mean, this, this stuff happens in our society. And I think the, the lack of response in this specific instance is more a statement on our society and mm-hmm. a statement on our voyeuristic nature to just sort of be sort of enthralled in the moment that we're seeing this thing live, but then we move on to the next video and we've completely forgotten about yeah. it. Well, unfortunately, Asante, we're all out of time. I'm so happy that you well, were that able th- well, <laughs> you're going to have to come back on the show. Truly. It's that simple. You're going to have to come. Hey, if you want to call in next week when Michael calls in, you're more than welcome to. Then I may just well take advantage of that. He's calling in at eleven thirty next week. So if you want to call in with Michael and both of you can, and we can do it a ta- in tandem about this process okay. and all of the you know and everything behind the the telling of this story of Linda Johnson, I would love it. I would love it, Asante. All right, I would try to make that happen. If I'm not on set somewhere, I will be doing that. And if not, we're, I'm going to get you on here again at some All point. All right, here it is. Asante, thank you so much, and hopefully I'll talk to you next week again. Yes, ma'am, thank you for having me. Thanks, Asante. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye.
Asante Jones talking live, and hopefully he'll be back next week. And now we have the incredible documentarian, Stephanie Welch. Welcome, Stephanie. Hello. How are you doing? Well, blown away by your documentary, I'll tell you that. Wow. Oh, thank you very much. I'm glad to hear it. (laughs) This is, we don't often see something that deals with eugenics and genetics um, and the hypotheses and the arguments and the philosophies out there about how your gene, your genome sequencing, how that predisposes you for whether you're going to be rich, poor, uh, what you'll do for a career. Absolutely fascinating. <laughs> Where did you get the idea to do this documentary? Well, we, you know, when we started, I, I'm sorry, I'm getting a little feedback there. When we started our our film project, there was a group of us, um, we were working on the relationship between genetics and agriculture and medicine. Mm-hmm. and looking at the Human Genome Project results that had come out in 2003 and saying, well, what is the relationship between these results? So they found all these surprises about DNA and genes, and how does that, how's that going to affect agriculture medicine? But then the more we looked into it, the more we started shaping the film, we decided um, eugenics and genetics was a much more uh, much a much better way to describe what we had found, which was that the the gene concept itself that we learned about in school with Mendel and all of that was mm-hmm. very flawed, and that the dangerous part that we talk about in the film, which is a dangerous idea, is the is the gene concept itself. That it's a dangerous idea to believe that traits are passed on, such as whether or not you'll succeed, whether you'll be poor, whether you have a certain kinds of intelligence, that that's passed on through this. DNA or any kind of mechanism, because the science shows that that's not the case. They have no proof that um, scientists have no proof that that's happening. <laughs> and even though people, we all assume it because we learned it in school. So, so that's how we decided that eugenics was the best way to tell the story, because it's really much easier for people to understand traits in that sense um, that we learned about Mendelian traits mm-hmm. and the danger of that. And the, our what we dis- discovered and shown in the film is where that idea led and how dangerous it is to mm-hmm. continue that idea. And this is a real past America has to reckon with that mm-hmm. a lot of Americans don't know about. You know, and that's, it's, as I'm watching, you know, you structure this so well and you start and you co- you very cogently take us from one belief to the next belief. Okay, if we have this, okay, that changes. And then we have to look at this. And then we have to look at this. And you take us along getting bigger and bigger and bigger in theory and philosophy as to what people are thinking um, with their mm-hmm. misconceptions, with Mendelism. And I have to, it's like I'm, I'm watching this and I'm like, it was, I was taken immediately back to school uh, when, I, when I was learning about that. Um, and my, how times have changed. So how did you go about developing this through line because you have so many incredible interview subjects, absolutely incredible. And one of the most in- interesting people you have involved in this project is Ruth Hubbard. Um, 
because mm. one of the greatest examples of eugenics is undoubtedly Adolf Hitler and the Nazi regime. And she escaped the regime. Uh, she lived in Austria and she escaped it and moved uh, in the 1940s to the United States. So here's somebody that was actually witnessing yeah. eugenics, you know, and herself might have at some point become a victim of it. So you incorporate all of this, you know, including you've got Van Jones, you've got Robert Reich, you know, one of my favorite people. Um, <laughs> He's so great. Robert, it, Robert is fabulous talking about money and worth and power and intelligence. So how did you go about finding all these people, lining them up to then come up with this cohesive through line? Oh, I'm so glad you you see some cohesion there because it was very difficult as you, uh, you know, the the people, I mean, we had some really great interviews to work with. And, and as you, have, you know, know about film, there's a ton that's on the cutting room floor that I'm trying to incorporate in small clips and for mm-hmm. people that we can share because there's just so much rich material there. Um, I think, you know, we had a lot of discussions about the structure. I say we, we had a couple of our producer partners um, who were involved as well. And, um, in, in laying out, you know, looking at the structure, how it might work best, and then also how to use graphics and animation to be able to tell the story. Mm-hmm. And so we went back and forth with a lot of different ideas, and I feel like the, the final structure we, we landed on works because we can separate out the science itself as a story, the science of the gene as a story, mm-hmm. um, away from some of the political and social uh, storyline. Um, so when we when we started, we thought we need to give an overview of the conflict between the concept of the gene and genetics and this view that it makes us who we are mm-hmm. and how it completely contradicts the notion that we all want to believe is true in the United States, which is you can be anything you want to be, pretty much, you know, as long as um, you have that opportunity. Mm-hmm. And that those two views we felt like are so in opposition that, that that's what most people haven't really thought about, I know we hadn't thought about it until we started this film, is that you can't have both. (laughs) You Mm -hmm. can't have a belief that genes make you what you are and have the American dream as an ideal or at least as a goal. And we know it's not true that people don't have all these opportunities Mm -hmm. in the United States, but that's at least what we are supposed to agree on as the goal for the United States. So we started with that as a structural opening and then got into the details um, through that and then wanted to end with where we are today uh, in terms of the dangers of this belief and where it's resurging, you know, the resurgence of it with the Trump administration and people starting to talk about, you know, Mexicans as criminals or all the different um, tropes we hear. And also Trump is in the film. I think you probably saw some clips. Where oh, yeah. About, yes, genes are why, why I'm successful. Yes, why genes. I'm so intelligent and I am successful and I am rich. It's my genes. Um <laughs> And you just look yeah, at that, so, yeah. and you know that the man truly believes that. I think he does. I, I think, think that, you know, sometimes a lot of the people who we have in the film, I I wonder if they actually believe what they say sometimes. Mm-hmm. In this case, I, it seems like he probably does believe I, I that re- that's why he's successful. <laughs> but, you know, I, this is what I find so compelling. And, you know, you very keenly and smartly Rather than just having talking heads and talking heads and talking heads, you do bring in really cool-looking graphics and animation, and you throw in some color with a lot of that. Uh, your one animated sequence um, with the genome sequence uh, 
and you actually have, you know, the double helix is it the chromosomal uh, helixes it's going around and you've got reds in there and silvers in there and you really make it visually appealing now i don't know if my genes great i'm so glad you think that (laughs) oh yeah you know now i don't know if my own genes are predisposed for me to notice that but you know i i notice (laughs) (laughs) you know and that just that's great you know but how did you actually pick all of these people and what were there when you came to them and said, hey, I'm going to do this documentary on eugenics and genetics and the American dream. Um, <laughs> do you want to talk about it? Uh, I'm j- it just because of the whole variety yeah. of people, the plethora that you have. I'm curious if you had any, yeah, we... any trepidation from anybody, any refusals or any, huh, what are you doing? Um, that, you know, no, you know, it was. Yeah, it was pretty pretty much the opposite. People were so happy that we were finally, that this subject matter was being addressed. I mean, Ruth Hubbard, may she rest in peace, she passed away, sadly, and wasn't able to see the film, which made me really sad. Oh. But um, she did two different interviews with us in a couple different years, because when our focus changed to eugenics, we, we wanted to revisit um, some of the detail there. Richard Lewinton, a lot of these scientists who spent their entire careers yeah. warning about these things and written about them. Um, so anytime anybody wants to dig in more, Richard Lewinton and Ruth Hubbard, I think, just should be credited with, with warning about this for decades. Um, and you can find a lot of their stuff online, speeches and whatnot. And then um, Oliver James, who has written some books in England, James Lefanu, who's also British. I mean, what we found, we were kind of, we didn't have it all laid out in the beginning. We really, it was through our discovery and research that we ended up finding the people that we felt could help us best tell the story. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I mean, even Van, and Van Jones and Robert Reich knew exactly what we were talking about when we said yeah. we really want to look at the dangerous you know, inequality that we're seeing and how biological excuses start to come up every time and the history of that. And they were, they were very much enthusiastic about it. Well, Robert is, you know, he is a big proponent on discussing the inequality that goes on economically in this country and where that stems from. So, uh, and having interviewed him multiple mm-hmm. times over the years on his documentaries and uh, and others that he's participated in, it just, it, I'm not surprised that he got involved because, no, for him, it's opportunity. It's not your genetic makeup. It's opportunity. You have to make and take your opportunities. Um, yes, and, and for now, I mean, like you said, he's been writing about this this inequality for all, you know, his film and book. And mm-hmm. it really is a, a time that, that people may not understand as being the, the new Gilded Age. It's worse than it was when in the Gilded Age, which is when the gene concept came about mm-hmm. conveniently to help explain the inequality. So, yeah, he can see that coming again here. You know, how long was your research process before you even started getting into your editing process? Well, we started, I, I think I, my first interview was at the end of 2004. <laughs> wow. Um, and like I said, we were, <laughs> we were focused wow. more on the agriculture and medicine. <laughs> it was, it's been a while. Um, and then I think by 2010 is when we had done, most of our research had done our preliminary interviews. And then 
decided to switch our focus to the more social and political. And that's when we started um, following up with more interviews once we started laying, laying out the structure to see what what we needed to help round out the whole the whole film, you know. And we were, so it was sort of, we were weaving it as we went, and we did a lot of different edits. We had a great editor, Maureen Gosling, who's just a veteran, wonderful editor of documentaries and, and producer and director herself. And Sarah Mamori has another wonderful direct, um, editor who helped us. So over the years, we, we got a lot of consultation and, um, and then some, just some final beautiful work from both of them. Mm-hmm. When did, you know, how did, the election, the 2016 election, impact your ultimate focus of of where you were ultimately going to end up with this documentary? You know, we, we finished <laughs> it before the election, sadly. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah, so we had to go in and, and we just felt like, you know, because at the time, what we had trouble, when we were thinking about distribution and, and releasing this film, we thought, this is going to seem like a stretch. You know, we had Obama... Um, in the White House, and you know there was so much progress that had been made, and um, but we were we were worried that there was this other, you know, kind of counter attack that would be coming, and no idea that Trump was going to make it into office, you know, and so we really realized, you know, this is not going to seem like a stretch now that he's in office and people can see the rise of white supremacy coming back, and and not that it ever went away, but that it was now more prevalent, more open about these views and how much genetics play the role. If anybody wants to want is wondering how much uh, white supremacists and a lot of these groups uh, rely on genetic arguments, please just go to their websites, go to some of these online social mm-hmm. forums. It, it's frightening how much they really, and I, you know, some of that, some of the people who have let loose with them um, in murders and mass murders have cited eugenics as part of their, Mm-hmm. their motivation. So when Trump was in office, you know, got in office, we thought we just have to at least show Trump's attitude about this, squeeze him in there, and we reworked the end of the film to reflect, like, Charlottesville, Virginia, and some of these signs of the anti-immigrant uh, sentiments and everything that were mm-hmm. that were exactly what we were predicting would happen once, um, you know, this, this sort of turn took place politically. So, And, of course, he gave you a plethora of sound bites. <laughs> he gave you a plethora exactly. of, of sound bites to plug in too. So I mean, oh, he's just—he loves this whole idea. He loves it. I know, <laughs> I know. You know how? You know how long did it take? Because you give so much history, going back in history. Mm-hmm. Did you have a core researcher who was, you know, doing the science research from the early days? And bringing that up before you before you start, it started molding with the Gilded Age and all of this. Well, you know, Andrew Kimbrell, who's our executive producer and co-writer, um, you know, I credit him completely and, and his group, the Cornerstone Campaign, back in 2003 when I was doing some radio research mm-hmm. with them. And he mentioned the Human Genome Project findings that things weren't what they thought they were. And um, so he he knows the science really well and said, you know, we should be looking into this. And the more he looked into it, and he had some really good scientists on his team, J.D. Hansen and, and Bill Fries at his group, the Center for Food Safety, and they know the science really well. They've been looking at this for 20 years in terms of agriculture. So really he led that um, with my son. He, um, he and I worked on that and then would consult with scientists all along the way to confirm 
um, you know, is this true? Are we saying this accurately? And I mean, it's a pro-science film in that sense. We really, it's already being attacked as an anti-science film, but it's the very opposite. We're trying to say, look, science is about presenting your theory, proving it, and then, you know, checking Mm -hmm. it and everybody following through to confirm. And this is what has not happened in this case with DNA and genes. The science is not being confirmed. Things are getting through right to the media before they're ever peer-reviewed. There's a lot of problems there. And so we we really did our best and are continuing to try to keep up on claims around the science. Basically, we're we're con- our contention is that we're back to where we were before Mendel um, in terms of understanding heredity and evolution. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of intricate pieces of it that scientists really have a lot of a handle on, I guess you could say, in a reductionist view. But when it comes to the larger view that we understand how this stuff works, I, I'm not convinced in any way that that's the case. Mm-hmm. And most scientists will disagree on many of these pieces and say, no, it's this, no, it's that. So then when you have that kind of disagreement, you know that it's a great time for students to jump in on the in the study of biology and help us really start to understand the complexity of what we're looking at instead Absol- of this reductionist view that has dominated the last hundred years. You know, absolutely, because, you know, everybody, you know, is familiar with the Darwinian theory of survival of the fittest um, through natural selection, not through controlled uh, breeding, which is what eugenics is, but through natural selection. So you've got science coming into play in so many different aspects here, and you have to believe that over the years, somewhere in there, there are going to be changes that are happening. Nothing is ever cut and dried until you actually do have that hard and fast evidence. I mean, it's like going to the moon. You could go, yeah, you could yeah. go this way and you could use a Buzz Aldrin slingshot to use the gravity around it, or you could go another way. Um, so there's there's always room for discussion in the scientific arena. That's what I find so fascinating, not just about this, but your other work, too. I mean, your bio wars, first do no harm, um, your revolution from the heart of nature. What is the appeal for you about these type of documentaries that you stick with? And you're very good with them. Well, so you know, I'm glad you do. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. That's very sweet. I'm, I mean, I think, you know, it's interesting that, that what my um, focus has been for probably the last 20 years or so of, of doing media around a lot of these issues is, you know, every what I what bothers me is when we are told that something is figured out, and that we need to accept it and what comes out of it in terms of science or these other things when that's not the case. And I think that this film exemplifies that more than anything. But Bioneers, the radio work that I do, you know, we um, put out a program that's been fifteen, seventeen years now, and it really focuses on solutions that already exist to mm-hmm. the social and scientific problems that we see. And it's just a matter of getting them implemented. You know, this idea that we don't know how to, what to do about climate change or some of these bigger issues um, and GMOs even with some of this stuff, you know, that, that the science is part of it and we we have solutions. And mm-hmm. so that's, I think that's always drawn me um, to the material to say, let's really find some specific ways that people can, in fun ways, people can learn about some of this in the media just is, as you know, just one yeah. of the best ways to to really relay these, these wonderful ideas. So. And throw in those colorful visual aids because people love the visual aids. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's why film is where my, my heart is. I love radio, but, you know, being able to do the sound and the image together has just been a joy for so many years. So. 
it, you know, where do you see yourself jumping from here? Will you continue to follow up on the genomes and do periodic updates, or will you move on to another project? Wow. Well, you know, this the, because we had to drop the medicine and agriculture part for, in favor of this theme, mm-hmm. I'm still hoping and, and trying to raise funds for, as a nonprofit, we have a nonprofit that we work with, mm-hmm. um, to get the medicine film done. I think that's the most urgent one for me. There's so much misunderstanding about how important DNA is in terms of our disease load in the United States and human, human-wise, but definitely just focusing on the U.S., when there's a ton of data that show that it's really our environment. So we see you know, genetics coming in as a real distraction and a lot of the money that's being put into research around that, around personalized medicine and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. It's a real distraction from the real causes of disease. And even by the admission of the people who are running the research will say it's only about 5%, which I think is, they have no proof of that. It's just what they're contending, like breast cancer or some of these things. They'll say, well, 5% of, of the diseases of cancer are caused by genetics, which so why are we putting 85% of our funding into it or whatever it is, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, but I think that's where my next um, focus will be is really finishing that, that film that we started, that we've got a whole lot already cut and ready to go. I just, I just want to update it with the most recent science and um, really find the best way to tell that story now that this film's out. Mm-hmm. How difficult is it getting funding for documentaries of this nature? Because the arguments are so polarizing. Right. You know, we were lucky because we had um, funders who, you know, we had, we went for private funding and only a few foundational funding. Mm-hmm. But I would say that the, that the polarization right now, it, it's interesting because when, when Trump came into office, I think a lot of nonprofits that I knew um, really felt like they were being kind of tossed aside mm-hmm. because so much of the focus went to fighting Trump and going against everything that he's working on, which is all very important, right? Um, but a lot of the issues, you know, all the number of many, many issues that we know are important, um, we're going to be kind of, you know, in competition with that. Yeah. And so I, I think nonprofit funding in general and media specifically, people, a lot of funders, I think, understand the power of media, but most don't. <laughs> Most don't see the, the investment that needs to be made to be able yeah. to counter the prevailing propaganda messages that we get pushing these other points of view. So I, I hope that, that they'll move in that direction a little more. But we were lucky to have funders who, who got that. Well, you know, unfortunately, I'm almost out of time here for the show. But I just want, let's see. So let me get this straight with release. This coming Friday, the 28th, a Dangerous Idea releases in New York, correct? Correct. New York, uh, L.A. The Village Theater. Okay. And then on uh, next week, on October 2nd, it'll be available on VOD and DVD. Yes. It'll be Amazon Prime, iTunes, and other outlets, and we'll have all that on our website. Which is a, which is a Dangerous Idea it's, Film.com. Uh, yep. <laughs> Yeah, we really hope people can come out. We've got our trailer on the website for people who want to see the trailer and get a, a sense of the film. And anybody who wants to reserve a DVD copy can just email me, email us on the website, goes right to me. <laughs> 
And um, no, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about the film, and so glad you you enjoyed it. I mean, I I was utterly fascinated by it, and watching this the whole construct, Stephanie. You know, the stages. First, we have this, then it moves on to this, then it moves on to this, and ultimately now it's this. Um, and I just and I really something as complex as this subject matter. The fact that it is so co- it is so cogent and so cohesive that everyone can understand it. This never this does not go over anybody's head. Um, this is not designed for right. a Harvard graduate. This is for you know the average everyday Joe or Jane in America. And uh, I think yes, we really really tried to do that. I'm so glad you feel that that was successful. Oh, absolutely. Stephanie, thank you so much. I hope you'll come back on the show. You, I would Debbie. love to talk to you about more about this and your other projects because I'm just fascinated by all of this. And uh, I would love that as well. I'll definitely what, let you know when the next yes, next film comes out. You know, and anybody that can take this kind of information and make it as comprehensive and understandable, hey, that's more than okay in my book because that's what we need <laughs> well, so people so understand. Much. Stephanie, thank you so much. Everybody, a dangerousideafilm.com. Thanks, Stephanie. Bye-bye. Okay, good luck, everybody. Bye-bye. And that is all the time we have today. Jumping on our feet today, different callers and who's booked. It's amazing. I wonder what's going to happen next week on Behind the Lens. Who knows? But until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.